FNVS podcast, Tibetan Context, seeks a deeper understanding of what is happening in Tibet as the Chinese Communist Party policies seek to eliminate Tibet's separate cultural identity and history. Stay tuned for our podcast commemorating the United Nations International Day of Victims of Enforced Disappearance. This show, produced by FNVA, is hosted by Kate Saunders, our Senior Research Fellow, in conversation with Tibetans discussing circumstances around disappeared writers in Tibet. We're happy to be hosting two Tibetan scholars with unique personal insights into the current situation in Tibet. Darik Tokme was born in eastern Tibet. He's now doing a doctorate at Oxford, exploring Tibet's relationship to the Mongolian Empire from a historical and political perspective. Tokme began this journey some years ago when he escaped from Tibet by walking on foot across the world's highest mountains into Nepal. In an astonishing series of life reinventions, Tokme studied first in India, then for a master's degree in Poland. Tenzin Choki is a researcher for Tibet Watch. She monitors information about policy, tracks developments and human rights violations in Tibet. Choki has a background in environmental science and has worked as a translator in three languages. In her current role, she provides analysis of the situation in Tibet to journalists, governments and academics. Today, we are marking the International Day of the Disappeared. I'd like to look back first of all to the year 2008, which transformed the political landscape in Tibet. Disappearance first became used then as a tool to oppress and suppress Tibetans on a mass scale. In 2008, series of overwhelmingly peaceful protests swept the plateau. Nomads thundered across the grasslands on horseback bearing Tibetan snow lion flags. Children held hands and joined monks and nuns calling for the Dalai Lama to, to be allowed to return to Tibet. A group of monks in the Jokhang temple wept as they told a visiting delegation of journalists that the Chinese government lies to the world. China's crackdown in response was overwhelmingly brutal, unprecedented in its scope and scale. Hundreds, probably thousands of Tibetans disappeared into black jails, military camps or prisons. Families and friends had no idea whether they were still alive. Today, the Communist Party government continues to disappear Tibetans to seize them from their homes in the middle of the night. Often, writers and artists are targeted. As we'll discuss in this podcast, they have an important role in Tibetan society. Writers and artists articulate a sense of loss, of grief, of hope and of fear. A group of writers in eastern Tibet put it like this. In a year that turned out like a raging storm, we could not remain idle. We did not commit to the foolishness of smashing this egg against a rock and knowingly leaping into an abyss out of rashness or for the sake of reputation. We did so out of the pain of separation from the tens of thousands of souls caught up in this deplorable violence and the tormenting thirst for freedom, democracy and equality 
for those who should have them but do not. At the forefront are a younger, bicultural, bilingual generation of educated Tibetans who are familiar with digital technology, with Chinese writing and official policies, often too with unofficial accounts of Tibetan history that are banned in China. This young generation of Tibetans have often studied at Chinese schools and universities, and they present a more complex challenge to the Communist Party government because they critique the party state using knowledge of its own laws. And a common theme of their writings is the solidarity of Tibetans across the plateau and a pride in their unique cultural and religious identity. It's notable, too, that these Tibetans discuss in their writings the sufferings of ordinary Chinese people as well as their own struggles against the Communist Party state. Through disappearing people, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to silence them, to erase their very existence. But imagine what it takes to maintain, nevertheless, your strong self-sense of Tibetan self your deep connection to the Dalai Lama and teachings. Few voices reach us, but this is one that did. I'll read an extract from a poem written by one of the hundreds of monks removed from their monasteries at night with black hoods over their head and transported to prisons or camps far across the plateau. This was a short poem written by a monk who was held in 2008 in Golmud Military Prison, Qinghai. And he writes, The three great monastic seats of Sarah, Drepung and Ganden are struck by the vapour of the poisonous snake. Because of this sea of adverse circumstance, there's no right to diligently study the scriptural texts. O oh, triple gem, kindly guide and protect us. O oh, triple gem, come forth with speed. Thank you, Kate, for organizing this uh, you know, online discussion about disappearance and writers, the role of writers in Tibet uh, as it is, as the ongoing occupation of China still continues since 1950s. Um, the poem that you read was it reminded me of a book that was published in outside Tibet by a Tibetan writer called Tsirinyangzun Lama because the poem written by the monk inside Tibet refers to a snake. And in the opening pages of Tsirinyangzun Lama's uh, you know, debut novel, she also writes about a snake you know, coming from the east of Tibet, and which is you know, a metaphor for the invasion. So... Um, you know, and and the poem that you read, you know, of a monk that was in Golmo reminds me of a writer who was also there at the time, uh, who is from Naba, Goshe uh, Rabgazu, who was sentenced uh, to 10 years in prison. Goshe Rabgazu is a very prominent uh, Tibetan intellectual writer uh, who has fiercely uh, and you know, without any fear, written and published uh, his thoughts uh, about the state of the Tibetan society. Uh, but not just that, he is a brilliant scholar. Uh, he's a brilliant Buddhist scholar. So, to go briefly into who he is as a person, 
uh, his family, uh, both his grandparents from his father's and mother's side, were ministers in the Mir Kingdom in Naba in, in eastern Tibet. Uh, in Naba, in more in more recent um, you know knowledge, is known for being the epicenter of self-immolation uh, in Tibet and also you know, in around the world. Gosher Gyatso uh, was the, the most recent sentence uh, was handed in uh, in, two, in October. Um, well, his arrest took place in October 2020, but the uh, prison sentence was handed much later. But even before that, uh, he was already uh, detained and arrested three times. The first time he was arrested when he was only 22. The second time he was arrested, he was 32, and he was in Golmu. Uh, that was in 2008 when the mass detentions of monks from Pasa uh, took place. So, um, you know, but he has still continued to write and publish, and he has published over 10 books. Um, and even Tibetans inside Tibet really uh, look up to the courage, the moral courage that he, uh, you know, lives on a daily basis by writing and publishing, knowing the cost that it would have on his own life, you know, because he's, he's been detained so young. Uh, his own father was one of the courageous uh, individuals who were, who was against the armed uh, who was against who was involved in the resistance in uh, during the Cultural Revolution in fighting against the uh, Chinese Communist Party. So, uh, and his father, by the way, uh, passed away in exile in Nepal. So, Gosharab Gesso, despite all of this, would continue to write. And publish, um, you know, uh, he was also in Hassa in 2008 when the mass uh, uprising, uh, peaceful demonstrations uh, spread across Tibet. But so the role of the writers, you know, uh, just like Gosherab Gatso, there are many other Tibetan writers uh, who Gosherab also knows who who was also sentenced to prison. So. Lobsang Hindub, uh, who is known by his pen name Dil Hadin, was sentenced to uh, four years in prison. Uh, Rongwe Gindun Hindub, uh, who Gosher also knows, uh, we have at Tibet Watch received photos of them being together, was disappeared. You know, uh, how Rongwe Gindun Hindub, you know, also a monk, was disappeared is that there was uh, there's an ongoing uh, policy implementation in Tibet called the Sinicization of Tibetan Buddhism. So uh, in his monastery, the campaign was you know being you know unrolled, and in one of the workshops, uh, he asked one of the workshop facilitators like, "How do you sinicize Tibetan Buddhism?" And which resulted in an altercation between the facilitators and him. And then a few days later, when he was uh, on his way to uh, Yagong County, uh, he was, uh, it was in December 2020, he was suddenly taken off from the street in a black car, uh, which was seen by a street side uh, vegetable vendor. Where he is, we don't know. know. And this is the state of a Tibetan writer, but then also of many, many Tibetans who are disappeared like that, who are 
who are held in uh, in incommunicable in detention for sometimes you know more than two years, during which we have uh, instances where they were tortured and they were left with injuries that were beyond treatment. Writers in general, all over the world, they are themselves, you know, uh, uh, a story, uh, their life, you know, after observing the society, the changes in the society, uh, they write what is happening around them, and, and sometimes they very boldly write their own life stories, which then becomes a portal for us, you know, Tibetans in exile and diaspora to look into understanding how the contemporary Tibet is. But uh, so writers have such an important place, you know, everywhere in the world, especially in places where the dictatorship, you know, the apparatus of censorship placed on literature is just growing with technology. The Rongwe for example, or one of the website, online website that he monitors was also taken down. So uh, that is the state of Tibet. If we just look from the point of view of disappearance and, and imprisonment of writers, so we have Kosher Gatso, we have Rongwe Hindu, we have Lopsang Hindu, and then we also have another writer, Sabuche, uh, uh, his pen name uh, was also sentenced to prison, but you know most of the commentaries that he has published are mostly social commentaries, so not explicitly political even. And it's really hard that the censorship inside Tibet puts you know those outside Tibet to fully understand what is unknown. Um, so when you look at the scene of you know surveillance uh, of the surveillance state being deliberately created inside Tibet and also in China, I think that even the saddest of the saddest poem or an essay that we are able to read out here uh, is not even sad. I think there are far more sadder and really heartbreaking and true stories that are being silenced that we still have yet to hear. Thank you, and. and- Goshar of Gyatso did a very moving letter um, about the Chinese doctor, Li Wanliang, who um, was the whistleblower of, about COVID when the uh, pandemic was first breaking out and he was silenced and died. And, uh, the, and Goshar of Gyatso wrote a very moving piece about him, didn't he? And as a monk scholar from Kirti Monastery, Gosharu Getso was um there's there's a piece of his writing here that I think sums it up very well. He wrote in, in 2013, he wrote um a letter to the monastic education committee, which was translated by Detchin Pemper's website, High Peaks Pure Earth. And uh, it includes this. He he wrote this since the time of the Buddha. There has always been a space to analyze the nature of things based on one's mental capacity and to test and critique truth about objects and phenomena. In the future, too, this space for debate must continue. Like the great scholars of the past who have handed down this tradition from one generation to the next, we must strive to continue and further improve upon this great tradition. It is simply wrong for a few people to have the power to decide 
whether someone's writing can and cannot be published. And then he ends with saying that he has a real heaviness in his heart because the red wind from outside is so strong and its orders so strict that we barely have space to breathe in and breathe out. This seems to be a very grounded and a very poignant perspective from a monk scholar. And I wonder if I could ask Tokme to expand further on the the role of the writer in Tibetan society and and why this is so important um, in the context of their struggle to preserve language and culture. Thank you. First, uh, I think regarding to uh, Grishira, uh, apart from being a great writer, he is a very good public speaker. Uh, I think that's very important, especially in regarding to Tibetan society. Uh, Tibetan societies are still like uh, most people are illiterate. People can't read sophisticated poems, intellectual stuff, but people can listen. So uh, that that's make it really uh, make him a very special from any other Tibetan writers, Tibetan those people to struggle for freedom. And uh, another unique thing about uh, Gushari is I think Gushari could be uh, one of the representative for those intellectual writers. Uh, Gushara himself has studied in Pasa and he knew the condition of Pasa that he'd been a uh, calm area for many years as a monastic intellectual teacher. Then he was born in Andog, so he literally knew all three parts of Tibet. Then he has some relatives in uh, exile. Then he's good in Chinese. He read a loads of uh, like Western uh, books about philosophy, human rights, equality, all kind of things. So he's a kind of person, everything in one position. So whenever he speaks to the public, he tried to, as Kate already read some uh, uh, piece of stuff there, he tried to really uh, convince the people, not the old-fashioned way, not like a very stronger nationalistic approach. It's like really like sort of a universal approach how is a human being, how is a person, the founded equality, freedom, or democracy, how those are important. That's why I think for China, definitely they found this is really uh, dangerous for uh, for the government, for the public stability. So uh, maybe, you know, uh, there's a similar figure, something maybe you've heard of this, Jampa Lusha. Jampa Lusha is an monk scholar who finished his uh, Geshe degree in uh, something, Sera Monastery, a garden of Sera, I guess it's Sera Monastery, then he went back to Tibet and uh, recently passed away. But many still uh, people still questioning why he suddenly passed away, uh, what is his condition, what is uh, his medical treatment, uh, but no one yet really know about. But he has the similar quality like a Goshir of Jansu. He's uh, monastic intellectual at the same time he know the broad understanding of this human right equality freedom all kind of broad view of all these important things that really tibetans are struggling for so uh, those people are i think it's really a sort of turning point if you look at the tibetan freedom struggle just say about 60 60 years of tibetan freedom struggle Almost by 2008 and 9, Tibetan, mostly Tibetan freedom strikers, individual peoples, lay peoples, or monks, they, they might fight for Tibetan freedom of religion. 
for Tibetan freedom of uh, sort of human rights, sort of for pe people's land. Or, or there are struggle for His Holiness Dalai Lama coming back to Tibet. But start from those intellects like Gushirab Jenso, Jampa Loshi, and also Dil Hardan, Tirong, those lay peoples start to involve with the Tibetan freedom struggle. We can see a really a big turning point for the Tibetan struggle. It's not just a struggle for as a nation. It's not really symbolistic view of nationalist approach. It's as a human being, as a human being in this world, how important for equality, freedom, all sort of kind of things. It's a, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's really a important turning point. If you look at this, uh, this point of uh, uh, approach to Tibetan freedom struggle, then uh, above that, I want to also add that Tiran uh, and Shokdong, Shokdong, those lay peoples who are personally, most of them are educated in Chinese schools and Chinese universities and colleges. So if you look at the past history, most of it, these kind of people from not like Tibet, other minority people who are educated in Chinese schools, they become a like permanent Chinese servant who served Chinese government. But these people suddenly turned back to China. They started speaking out uh, in terms of their own constitution. Suppose uh, if you, the very important case is uh, when Shokjian uh, was arrested in 2016, uh, he uh, wrote a very important letter to the uh, local code on the basis of Chinese constitution, how people can have uh, freedom of speech freedom of right, freedom of publish. So those kind of intellectual movement to fight against the Chinese own constitution, Chinese own legal system is, uh, is I think, is a very important because that, that, that's, that's really make a difference from other common people, those people who are not really educated, who just uh, come out in the street, shout for freedom, shout for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, then just gone in jail. So. But those intellectuals are coming with a different approach. I think these are the very important uh, contributions brought by those uh, intellectuals, the uh, writers uh, to Tibetan freedom struggle. Um, you mentioned Thorang, Thorang before, who was one of the writers of the Eastern Snow Mountain, the, uh, the famous publication from Naba in Amdo. And one of the notable things about that, well, that was one of the most important collections of writing about 2008 and published published in that in that same year um, and that was supported by a lot of lay people um, a lot of people in that area who who funded and published that of course it was banned from circulation soon after publication but perhaps you could talk a little more about that and those writers oh uh, yeah uh, the eastern mountain is normally a uh, sort of a magazine kind of a a uh, journal for literature is published yearly based or monthly based. I'm not very sure about anywhere. It's a, something they basically publish every year, every month. Uh, but in 2008, Hirang, Shokjang, uh, some of other people who are recently, some of them already graduate, some are in the final year of graduation, they become editors. Then they really uh, uh, take a uh, they really took a very strong stand. Whether they are already they collected a couple of articles, essays, then they I think submitted to the 
a university uh, institution to uh, publication permission, but they said you can't publish this. If you publish this, then you can't, this journal will be end there, then there's no more journal next year. Then they have a day loads of back in days, then blog writing is very popular, right? People are writing online, whether it's important to give up the, the last of the journal or is it better to say something that you want to say in the journal then no matter whether this is the end of the last publication then anyway at the end they decide to publish some of those articles it's a really important classic articles and many of articles related to the 2008 the peaceful Tibetan revolution as Kate mentioned above uh, so uh, in in that in that article, Kilong uh, wrote uh, a very important piece about uh, regarding to Tibet, uh, Chinese constitution, how individual person, how Chinese citizen can have a freedom to freedom uh, to speak, freedom to write, freedom to peaceful protest. So uh, as I said before, these are the very very important efforts. But because no one said that before, people come in the street, then people shout for freedom, people are arrested. So Many people, other people think, okay, this must be the case. But those intellectuals want the Chinese own constitution. They read it. They just bring that out. They fight the battle with their own constitution. So this is the something. Uh, this East Mountain, uh, the journal, uh, uh, make a very big, big issue in uh, in China, and it's also popular. I think it's republished in Excel, and uh, many of those articles are translated in a. Uh, uh, other 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 publications in other I think it's come area there's some of those uh, articles are published so uh, I think this is a really important sort uh, of a journal in terms of popular culture as well the um, music is very important in Tibetan tradition and uh, the role of the singers has been very important the, and many of the singers have have uh, gone to prison because of the, uh, the, the lyrics of their songs and also their investment in, in their own cultural identity and protecting it. Clashes with China's project of sinicization, as Choki mentioned, which is, which is seeking to, um, to compel Tibetans to conform to a Chinese cultural nationalism and to eliminate and undermine a, a Tibetan identity. It's, there was recently a couple of really well-known Tibetan uh, singers, I can't mention the name, uh, but they were going live, uh, you know, uh, with their fans or whatever. But in the beginning, you know, they were speaking to each other in Tibetan and saying that, you know, well, we can't speak to each other in Tibetan, can we? Because if we speak in Tibetan, then our life thing will be put down so you mm. know it's it's you know writers musicians artists you know they are all part of cultural uh, you know knowledge uh, cultural production uh, the cultural identity um, and you see that the the musicians not only can they you know they don't have the freedom to just openly sing about the state of their homeland or what's happening under these various range of freedom that the constitution promises to you know, give them, but not, they can't even, they have the fear to speak online in their own language. 
So uh, I think that's really uh, something that is going to affect uh, the whole literature scene. It's the project that's going to, that has been going, you know, since the occupation of Tibet, and that the Chinese uh, Communist Party seeks to deliberately uh, go ahead with, you know, for years and years and years. Uh, I think that's the cost of colonial policies on individual lives, uh, on every facet of what forms an individual and collective identity. Why do you think uh, that uh, the Chinese party state is so threatened by by the writers and by the artists, by the singers? I think, um, so that's only my point of view, uh, I think writers, artists, uh, they live through the changes of time and they reflect it, they reflect what the reality is. But the Chinese Communist Party uh, has only one vision of how the so-called common prosperity of a human being should be. And this word common prosperity is now being widely and ubiquitously used in the Chinese state-owned media. <clears throat> you know, so what, what should be uh, prosperity? What should be happiness? What is the, the version of reality? Whether it's you know, how you should speak, what you should think, what you should not think. These are only uh, attempts to consolidate power you know, and knowledge and it's directed with a specific agenda. But the reality is such that writers, artists and musicians, they, they are not confined with that. They are not hungry for power, I don't think. I think they just reflect life as it is, as it changes. Um, and I think the CCP... They're not willing to see it, accept it, or confront it. Uh, and so they would uh, make a host of policies to silence it in any means, in any way possible. So it's the refusal to open their imagination to freedom, which everybody wants at the end of the day. And talk may the, the sort of existential courage of the writers and, and artists and those Tibetans who are still running pure land language groups or, or defending their cultural identity in so many different ways. Do you see that continuing today, people finding new ways of, of expression? I mean, what, what, what do you think is, is the future for Tibetan literature and in, under these circumstances? I think, as uh, Chuki, Chukila mentioned, I think music is a very important element in Tibetan freedom struggle. It's the same case, if you look at the, any, and if you pick up any national freedom strike case, any country in the West, in Asia, suppose India, so music play a huge, huge role all the time. It's, that's no exception to the Tibetan case as well. If you uh, look at uh, uh, some of Tibetan music from 2008, uh, some of Tibetan songs almost become a sort of national anthem. People sing, uh, come under Pasa, exile, everywhere. It's uh, become a part of the identity. So when we, uh, we discuss about Tibetan music, there are always uh, writers behind those musicians. Uh, most of uh, at one point, Tibetan music writers start to write 
loads of lyrics it's uh as chukila said it's a is a, a case if you if you are in china if you're a musician you continue to sing a song so you can't say things so obviously so visibly so people uh, start to uh, compose a lyric to those have a meaning so so everybody sort of everybody know the meaning but they didn't say it so visibly so uh, those music is a play important role but they still play important role and uh, another important uh, shift uh, if you look at the, uh, those tibetan writers is uh, now tibetan uh, music is become more sort of accessible to the public uh, back in days if you are a musician but still you need to have quite good amount of money to publish your album or cast or anything but nowadays the internet because of internet connection because of uh, this uh, online system any anyone can compose singers on publish online so you don't need to publish in a album cd so and uh, many of those if you look at the, just randomly you pick up some modern tibetan music in youtube you go them look at them lyric composers many of lyrics are most of them related with the tibetan culture tibetan struggle tibetan mountains uh, sometimes some people from begin to end is about a mountain it look like about a mountain it's not actually the mountain people know that what they really mean to the mountain they referring to you know so uh, those are have been played for maybe since last decade it's really play important role in tibetan freedom struggle and it is still still uh, be the same then some of the uh, music become part of uh, popular culture i should say that because uh, if you look at the modern some of modern chinese cities such as beijing uh Chengdu, uh Xinin, Xinin is like a Tibetan city, but the loads of Chinese people live there. So now uh most of the Tibetans gathered every maybe weekends, every afternoons, the jungs in a big circle to play Tibetan music. So if you listen to some of those lyrics, those lyrics are uh, talk about Tibetan unity, the importance of Tibetan language, Tibetan culture. So it's a sort of a part of the way because more more tibetans are moving into cities so they are creating this uh, new way of identity new way of to connect to each other through music so if you look at behind this music those are the writers who compose those beautiful beautiful uh, lyrics so so it's a place every part of life you know is a is is really important now is if you see dharamsala now people start to uh, having a circle dance in metal away some every weekends or something it's happened every exile uh, back in days while well, i was saying in the first uh, in uh, poland in the warsaw so whenever people have a uh, gatherings tibetan new year or any other special gatherings we have a uh, pray then eat something then do something of uh, one or two tibetan dance but now group dance circle dance become a most part important part of gatherings so if you look at those music those are not just the music about uh, love or something this is all the lyrics about mountains love for the country importance of culture so it's a is a place a huge role everywhere that's wonderful description there's this comic sketch that i saw i think maybe a year ago it's about just the non-stop new music videos uh, that are coming in out you know in tibetan media and often when you go on youtube and look for tibetan songs new songs you just type new tibetan song and then you, 
<laughs> All the songs are titled New Tibetan Song 2021-2022. And this comic sketch says that, you know, uh, someone made a music video and wants to you know, put it on YouTube and just thinking really hard, you know, what to name it, something really catchy and quirky, you know, that would just stand out, you know, in the pool of music video, but then finally just ends up, you know, naming it New Tibetan Music Video, <laughs> New Tibetan Song or something like that. So, yeah, that's been going on for many, many years. And I think that, you know, what... Um, Derek just said about music being really important. I think we're going to see many new ones every year. Uh, there, uh, the combat TV, uh, interestingly, because uh, Tibetan musicians, but still there's, uh, this is still completely new things, but Tibetans, uh, I mean, they love music, but the way they enjoy music is different from uh, where we enjoy here or enjoy other places, you know, uh, now, uh, come back to you every month. They have a small episode to uh, select the top music, like a billboard chart with the top number one, two. They do that because based on the Chinese uh, social media where they platform every month who is the new music uh, released by a new artist. Then based on the election, based on the vote by the listeners, they just display, show that old music every month in Kamba TV. If you look at the... Every year, most uh, tour music is always uh, uh, those uh, lyrics that uh, play a very important role. But obviously, the music, the rhythm, songs are important, but lyrics play a very important role. Whatever you look at, tour number one and two, they always, uh, lyrics uh, really make a difference, you know. Always say something about uh, culture or identity or something very kind of thing. They always, always tour number one or two. So uh, they really still play a big role. On 25th of February, a young Tibetan man set fire to himself in front of the Dalai Lama's former home, the Patala Palace in Lhasa. Both Tibetans and Chinese were shattered when they discovered that the young man who had died was the famous and much-loved pop singer, 25-year-old Soang Norbu. Soang Norbu was born on 9th of October 1996 in Nagchu, which is in the Tibet Autonomous Region. He was exposed to music and arts from an early age, and he developed a rare dedication to it. Norbu was known for singing modern, folk, popular, traditional, and many other types of songs. He also wrote and composed them himself. A few years ago, 2017, he was one of the finalists in a major Chinese TV show with his song Nomad's Ballad. He also performed on the major television platform Voice of China with a song called Returning Home. His deep love of Tibet and Tibetan culture shine through the lyrics. There is a place known as the homeland. There is a happiness known as the home. There is a relation known as the parents. There is a gratitude known as compassion. That's from a translation which is on the website of High Peaks Pure Earth. On the day of his self-immolation, in his last social media post, Soang Nobu expressed gratitude to his fans for their comments and messages. There was an outpouring of grief as the news spread on social media, and that was quickly blocked and censored by the Chinese government. Soang Norbu had grown up watching his father, Chogyan, compose and create music. In May, 
compounding the tragedy, Chogyan committed suicide. And this was following threats and intimidation from the Chinese police after his son's self-immolation. Taiwanoba, uh, uh, came to know uh, Taiwanoba through uh, some of his uh, friends, other friends who knows him personally. Um, so uh, Taiwanoba is a person. Some of these are some people like the Taiwanoba. So it's those artists who can compose their own lyrics. Taiwanoba mainly sing a song. Also, he do a little bit of rap kind of lyrics as well. So Taiwanoba. Uh, it's interesting thing is if you look at the town as a person family background, her mother is a, a very well known uh, a Tibetan nomadic singer. Uh, she sings a very popular song back in the maybe nineties. Then she became a very popular. Then she became a Chinese uh, communist military singer or something. Then he literally that's her. then he she separated from her family. Then town grew up with the. Uh, his father and his uncle. So uncle is a very well-known Tibetan freedom striker. He went to jail a couple of times, or two, three times. Then if we look at the Taiwanese music, he sing uh, in the many of platforms in both in Tibet and in China. He always sing either in Tibetan or in English. So he been singing that for many many years. And just last the year before. I think 2020-19 or something, the year or one or two years before he uh, self-immolated, one of the uh, TV commentators said to Taranova, why you didn't sing any Chinese song? Why always, you come all the time, any TV, there's lots of TV uh, programs have uh, competitions for those young singers. He said, you should sing a Chinese song, maybe then you go, uh, maybe finalist or you get a better marks. You always sing a Chinese song or Tibetan song. The problem is, if you sing English song, Chinese song, most of those people give a mark. They don't understand either Chinese, either English or Tibetan. So that's the case. So um, tell no, but people like him, he's young, he's a uh, well, kind of well-established artist. And they, if you look at, look at the personal sort of stories, they always keep a very strong position, sort of personal. They have very individual principles, uh, shall we call it, as a, it's really important if you look at it. If you look at number of Tibetan singers, if you look at those individuals, uh, how they play a role in Tibetan, if you freedom struggle or preservation cultural identity, they all individual very interesting stories like Tsongkhapa. He been keep on singing about uh, Tibetan identity culture, not like very much religious way about very something very simple like he's one of his popular song called Zamba. How he described Tibetan through Zamba, how important, how the Zamba's color is white, how it's connected with the Tibetan people's heart, Tibetan people's struggle. So it's a, it's a very interesting. So uh, I think he's a, he's quite a unique, unique singer. And he was only 25 years old when he oh, set himself on yeah, fire. So yeah. And, uh, and of course, there was an outpouring of grief from young Tibetans and young Chinese because he was, he was extremely well known among Chinese young people as well for his, for his uh, songs. There's many young people, especially in the, the like in Pasa and uh, 
song, those people who really uh, loved these songs, they, uh, many of people saying, if you look at Chinese uh, social media, if you kept a, a Chinese Weibo, and many people saying they have a news of whether he's a family or not, but people are not sure, but everybody running after his uh, Weibo, his uh, personal Facebook, sort of Facebook page, and then the people are writing a lot of comments on the, uh, after his blog, and then after maybe, I keep on watching that, maybe after one, two hours, it's gone. So you can't comment anything. Then people are running after those other his personal songs published. There's a uh, uh, There's Chinese another uh, website where they publish the new Tibetan songs. People running after that songs. That people start writing the comments comment section. And after a few minutes, the gun you can't write any comments. Mm-hmm. Then the two three days after, like all his songs in Chinese, uh, we fall by the uh, Chinese TikTok gone everywhere so the people the reactions are very strong but that's why people can't say anything then what they do any individuals with the, the picture of a tibetan potala because he suffer emulates just in front of potala place mm-hmm. someone posts the potala palace then in the comment section all people just uh, post an image of crying people or with the folding hands that's you know it's it's, it's really emotional people especially mm-hmm. among young mm-hmm. people People, they can't say a word. You're not allowed. If you say something, then you delete away. So that's a, just put all the place. People, you know, try to communicate a different way. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's quite emotional, but it's very interesting as well. This really speaks to also a larger trend, I suppose, in the self-immolations we're seeing inside Tibet. So uh, it's been over 150 known reports of Tibetans been having self-immolated inside Tibet. There's also been, you know, self-immolations outside Tibet as well, Tibetans. But those inside Tibet, at least half of them, if I'm not wrong, were committed by Tibetans under 24 years old. So these are really young, you know, young, young people who, who come from different family backgrounds, you know, who are from across the Tibetan areas, uh, not just Tibetan autonomous region that the Chinese government always explains as being the only Tibet. So um, I think it really sheds light on how, uh, you know, it's not going away, the Tibetan issue not being addressed. These are Tibetans who have, if they are only in their 20s, they lived they haven't witnessed uh, an occupation. They haven't, you know, mm-hmm. but they have inherited that sense of identity. And to do to to have that, even after many many years of what seven decades of Tibet being under occupation, that really is an answer to the lie that the government always, you know, perpetuates every single year. Uh, especially on 28 March nowadays, since the 2008 uprising, they marked that day off as being the self, as uh, the self emancipation day. So uh, that you know, Tibet is still not free. It's still not. Uh, it's still under occupation, and Freedom House ranks Tibet as being the least free country. So Tsong uh, Nobu, with his songs, you know even if they are not specifically about you know, asking for freedom or crit- criticizing this policy and this, you know, article. But then he speaks to, you know, what being a Tibetan is, an identity that is distinct from 
from China, uh, from from Chinese identity, which is also very multicultural. But yeah, I think as Derek said, uh, you know, if we look through one individual's life, that story, that life, a person can become a looking glass into what Tibet is nowadays. I mean, the the two self-immolations this year of Sawang Norbu on the twenty uh, fifth of February outside the Patala. Um, and then the uh, more recent uh, self-immolation in, in Naba of Tapun, who was 81 years old. So the, you know, the, the elder generation and the younger generation, both this year. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the older Tashi Pintok, the 81-year-old, when he turned 80, he had told uh, other Tibetans that the young you know, Tibetan youth should not give up that with the blessing of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, the exiled spiritual Tibetan leader, uh, the sun of happiness will shine in Tibet. So, you know, he was not even saying it specifically to his grandchildren, you know, he was just saying, you know, the young, the youth you know, of Tibet, don't give up. It's still here. And even with such a young um, singer who had, from the outside, received all of the benefits of, uh, of the younger generation culture and reasonably comfortable lifestyle and so on. The fact that you chose to take that extreme action. True. So much about, um, I, I remember that uh, in, in China, when they talk about thought reform back in the Cultural Revolution, they used to use this uh, phrase, which was the invisible knife which was the knife that doesn't cut the body uh, physically, but it cuts your thoughts and your connections to who you are as a person. So this ongoing campaign of sinicization, it seems that many of the Tibetan writers are experiencing that and experiencing that, that response. It's the invisible knife. You, you can't see the psychic damage, the damage it's doing to your and it's the way they do it with no respect, this grotesque level of how you relate to another human being, even after, uh, even after their death. So, in the case of Tashi Pinzok, he was he's in his last years of his you know life, and he moved near to to live near Kirti Monastery. You know, as many elder generations are devout Buddhists, you know, they want to commit the last stage of their life towards uh, a virtuous life, going on Kora circumambulations. So, and he, so his self-ambulation took place in front of police station. So it's not a coincidence, it's not a coincidence that they would, you know, protest in front of police. It's a statement in itself. But, you know, his body was taken away. His body was not returned to his family. And his family was obviously kept under surveillance. And then they would go on to just spread lies about how the self-immolation was a suicide and keep a grieving family who don't even have the body of their mm. grandfather to say the final prayers. I think that really speaks to how inhuman Chinese Communist Party is, that they would show that level of disrespect even after death of someone who has only spoken truth not harmed anyone, not bombed a police station, mm. but just stood there, you know, uh, alone. I think that's why I think CCP is 
one of the most evil you know, group in this world. Yes. Uh, I think just just something come to my mind. I, 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 Raven, uh, what, what's the future of Tibetan literature? That's the question, right? I, if the, I just I thought if we look at the Tibetan sort of uh, after after Cultural Revolution, so new Tibetan magazines started publishing that Tibetan be able to write things in Tibetan. So uh, then Tibetan start to express themselves through the magazines, journals, poems, but. The, uh, as I said before, because of the literacy rates among Tibetans are very slow, very low, and uh, they just it's reach out a very small circle of those who can read and write, and uh, then they uh, many of writers start to express themselves through the music. It's, it's a very important uh, sort of turning point. Then recently, I uh, started with the uh, you know the Bama and those uh, new filmmaker. He himself is a novelist. Mm. He's a writer himself at the beginning. Then. Then another guy is called Daja. I know personally from my hometown, there's one guy called Yundan. Yundan is a very good writer. Then these people started jumping into film industry. So they, they found a new way to communicate with the people, with the public. They found that's the way to reach out to more people. So every, every, there is a website called the Tibetan Films. So almost every month you can find a two, three new films. Like, although I think it's still that really not make a good money but still they those writers are not stick with the traditional way to communicate with the people now they found a different way so uh films are another way because uh that's the way everybody can see not just uh read it just uh, virtually you can see people people's action the expression so uh some of the uh, films are, uh uh one film made by um yunden from uh, literally from my hometown he uh, produced a film called Blackboard. It's about a language teacher who visited in a local village to teach Tibetan language. So it's a, it's a short film, about 30 minutes or something. It's really powerful. To that individual person, you can zoom it out entirely. But, you know, you can see every kind of level of Tibetan cultural repression, people's kids alive. If you graduate to something with the Tibetan language certificate, uh, the problem of finding a proper job, it speaks a lot. Then this is something we can watch, not Tibetans, like non-Tibetans as well. So this is another way how Tibetan writers uh, uh, try to find, not stick with the traditional style, then they just uh, expanding the sort of channel of communicating with people. It's, a, it's, it's a very interesting as well. That's really interesting, and it, and it, and it certainly gives hope for a future survival of literature in different forms and artistic expressions. Yeah, many of you, many of you, if you look at the recent uh, some of films, many of those films are based on the novels than they published before. Because novels no, are only right, by some of those people who can read. Now they they turned the novels into a film. That's how everybody can see. There is a very well-known novel called Rallo. Rallo is the name of an individual. So his novel became very popular i think he received a local press received something like but only can literally people can read it now it's become a new movie with the two episodes i think then everybody can listen watch enjoy it then this is a another way to uh, communicate and uh, some of those especially i think this year there is a very uh, well-known called uh, what's it namka or sky or something those are uh, films who are really uh 
discuss about Tibetan identity in this modern turning point, not just, just surface level, it's really profound at deep level. Those movies are not like a Hollywood kind of movie, like like mm. really easy to story. The stories are like complicated, but some of those, because most of those film producers, unlike other Western countries, those are writers, literally mainly writers who become a film producers. Like in exile, we know the Jungbu, right? Who live in Paris. Mm-hmm. So those popular writers become a film producer, then they really can communicate mm. with the people a uh, kind of subtle level, not just the easy story, but it's, it's a really interesting. Pamasedan, of course, as well, wrote various films based on the stories, like Tarlo and so on. Yeah, exactly, Tarlo. Yeah. I also recently uh, watched uh, his son's debut uh, film, uh, which oh. is called The Four. Yeah. It's a debut film, but it's really good. And uh, at the end of the film, in the credits, you know, it was, they had both Tibetan, you know, and Chinese. It was not just Chinese. Even in the film credits, you know, to have Tibetan script, you know, there, I think uh, it was, you know, really powerful to see Tibetan scripts mentioned at the end of, made by a Tibetan inside Tibet, and to have that in a big screen outside Tibet was really good. Thank you both. I thought that was a really fascinating enlightening discussion one thing i would like to add about your circle dance and the future of tibetan uh, just you know an identity in just in a broader sense i think you know since 2008 after just protests and self immolations sweeping across tibet one you know movement emerged from inside tibet so hakka uh, known as White Wednesday, very loosely translated. So every Wednesday, you know, nobody organized it, you know, with a set of rules. It just was a, you know, it just organically came out with a first, there was a post, I think, online about what uh, every Tibetan would do on a Wednesday. Um, they would speak in Tibetan language, they would wear Tibetan dress, they would support Tibetan businesses. They would basically not even even if they are not going out in the streets in in big numbers to protest, but every Wednesday, Wednesday because it's the um, sole day of His Holiness Lama, they would assert their Tibetan identity. Uh, so I think that movement, you know, every Wednesday, uh, Tibetans uh, in Dharamsala, for example, they would be doing prayer and incense offerings, kora. They would be dressing in uh, Tibetan dress and uh, wishing each other, you know, al-hakar a happy White Wednesday. I think to have such a decentralized you know, movement come from inside Tibet uh, shows how with the changing times, you know, Tibetans are finding ways to assert their identity. I think that's, it's, I think it's important to note that like outside in the world where we have movements, uh, where, you know, like Extinction Rebellion, where it's so decentralized, uh, but it's, you know, collectively across the world trying to challenge the authority uh, by according to their own belief. So in a similar way, I think, in Tibet, where the cost of being arrested and detained and kept uh, in dark for three years is known, such movements have been... Um, have started you know, many years ago after a historic uprising in 2008. So I think uh, with that, 
I think the future of Tibetan identity um, will will find a way to you know, assert itself. Thank you. I think that's um, that's a good point to draw a close to what's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you for listening to our first Tibetan Context podcast by the Foundation of Nonviolent Alternatives. You can find it online at fnva.org. We've provided links on the site to websites mentioned on this podcast. We'll conclude with a clip from the remarkable young singer Sewang Norbu, who set himself on fire on 25th February. Please do look at the lyrics of his uplifting song, Returning Home, subtitled into English by High Peaks Pure Earth. Sailing, <laughs> you,